today, we are starting a new series that we're going to be uh, looking at for the next five weeks or so, and it's called Coming Up Empty. And uh, many of you know that in the mid-1800s or so in the United States of America, there was a gold rush. And over the next 50 years or so, people all over the country were super excited to find gold, pretty much anywhere. Many people moved west to find gold. And um, a lot of times what would happen is people would find gold dust in just various random places like at the bottom of a riverbed or something. They would find uh, gold dust or particles of gold and they would spend, they, they would keep it secret of course, and then they would, they would spend um, weeks and months and, and countless hours collecting all this gold dust and, and you know, storing it in bags. And then when they uh, collected all the, all the gold dust they could find, they would throw it in the back of their wagon and they would take it down to the local bank. And they would, they would exchange it into the banker with these great expectations that their, their fortunes would now change. Their, they would be, you know, rich. And their whole identity and status would change because they found all this gold. They struck it rich. Uh, and, and many of these people would become very disappointed to discover that what they had found was not gold. It was fool's gold. It wasn't the real thing. It looked like gold. It felt like gold. But it wasn't gold at all. It was actually totally worthless. And these people's dreams would be crushed. They wasted hours and days and weeks collecting something that had no value at all. And I want to ask you this morning, what is in the back of your wagon? What is it that you've been treasuring? What, what thing has so consumed you because you thought it would give you worth and you thought it would give you joy, only to find out that it was an empty pursuit? In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21 the prophet says, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And the big idea this morning and over the next few weeks that we're going to look at is simply this. Every time that we use something else to get what only God can give us, we come up empty. We come up empty every time. We get used. The joke is on us. Well, what am I getting at here? Well, you and I have a problem, and we don't want to admit it most of the time. We all want to feel worthy. We want to be worthy of love and worthy of acceptance and worthy of praise and worthy of admiration, worthy of respect, worthy of joy and happiness and all of that. But we have this terrible habit of looking for that worth in the wrong places. We look for it in our spouse. We look for it in our children. We look for it at work. We look for it at school. We look for it all over. It's like the high school student who is obsessed with their GPA. They have to get good grades. They have to get an A and they'll do whatever it takes to get it because anything less might disappoint their dad. It might ruin their chance to get into their dad's alma mater. They need their dad's approval to feel worthy. Or maybe it's just who they are. They've always been the smart one. They've always been the one who got the highest scores in the family. 
And if they don't continue to perform at that level, they won't even know who they are anymore. They often become the college student who uses drugs or alcohol to cope with the stress and demands of exams. It might be the business executive who's never satisfied with his status, who has to keep climbing and climbing and climbing and keep reaching higher goals and keep getting promoted, keep achieving more and working more. Ah, light. It might be the mom who uses her children as a way to justify her existence. As long as her children are behaving and achieving, she feels worthy. But when they're not, she feels vulnerable or even ashamed. It could be the young married woman who wants more than anything to have a child. And the months and the years go by and she doesn't get pregnant. People have always told her, well, when you have kids someday, but that someday never comes. And she feels that until that day comes, she's not worthy. She feels she must have children to be happy. Could be the middle-aged man who can't stop looking at pornography because it gives him a sense of control and power and worth. It could be a middle-aged woman who's not satisfied with her health or her body, so she obsesses over the best foods and the best body. It starts out innocently enough. She just wants to lose some weight. But after she sees results, it becomes a mission, becomes a driving force. She runs a 5K, then a half marathon, then a marathon, then a triathlon. It's like she must achieve these things. If she doesn't, she doesn't feel worthy. It could be the wife or husband who feels that if the marriage doesn't survive, they will not be worthy and life may not be worth living. Or it could be just a teenage girl who never feels worthy unless she has a boyfriend. One of her boyfriends gave her a heart-shaped locket once with their pictures in it, and she just keeps swapping out the pictures. And every time there's a breakup, she feels completely empty. All of these human beings have one thing in common. They are seeking something besides God to get what only God can give them. They are all worshipers. But without meaning to, they're worshiping something that can never give them what they need. They're worshiping things that are not worthy of their worship. They're worshiping and craving things that cannot give them worth and instead will always leave them completely empty. The Bible has a name for this problem. Do you know what it is? Idolatry. The Bible calls this idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, idolatry, you might think of idolatry as bowing down to a wooden or, or um, some other kind of statue, a stone statue. And in ancient times, that's often how it, was, how it was practiced. But idolatry today is much different in our modern culture. Idolatry is something that comes from the heart and causes us to seek or use something or someone to give us what only God can give us. An idol can be anything which gives us worth apart from God. Anything at all. Idolatry happens when we give our best to something besides God. That's how I'm defining it. Let me offer you another definition. Uh, Greg Dutcher defines idolatry this way. It's cherishing, trusting, or fearing 
anything more than we cherish, trust, or fear God himself. I think that's a great definition of idolatry. Well, what can an idol be? An idol can be a successful career. It can be a healthy marriage. It can be a happy and successful uh, child or children. It can be the approval of our parents. It could be a degree. It could be a new home or a new car. It can be a romantic relationship. It can be a fit and healthy body. It can be a certain economic or social status. Whatever it is, once we have it, we become terrified of losing it. And when that career or that marriage or those children or that body or whatever is threatened, we are threatened. When that thing shakes, we shake. That's how idolatry works. And the Bible goes even deeper than that. Idolatry, according to God, is an exchange. It's an exchange. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul's talking about the prop, what's, what's wrong with the world. He's talking about what's the, the main thing that's wrong with every human being. And it all comes down to an exchange. In Romans chapter 1, we read this. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Again in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. The same language is found all the way back in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. The prophet says this, or God says this through the prophet, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, only God can satisfy our deepest needs and longings. Only God can give us worth. Only God is worthy of our worship. Only God can give us pleasures with no end. And yet we've exchanged God for pleasures and joys that always run out, always leaving us empty. It's just what we do as human beings. Uh, when I was a child, I collected baseball cards. It was an obsession. I, 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 by the time I graduated high school, I had like 25,000 baseball cards. I had a huge collection. And that story has a very sad ending that I won't get into today. But I spent hours and weeks, that was like my fool's gold, was baseball cards. I spent years of my life and hundreds of dollars as a child growing up in the 80s. That's a lot of money for a kid growing up in the 80s. Hundreds of dollars on baseball cards, okay? And one day, my dad came into my room and he said, Dave, come here, I want to show you something. And he took me upstairs to our attic in our house, which I barely even knew existed. And he goes in the attic and he pulls, he gets down this old, dusty, broken down binder. And he brings it down in the kitchen, he opens it up, and it was the 1954 Topps baseball card set. The whole set. 
minus just a few common cards. Like, I mean, Hank Aaron's rookie card, Ernie Banks' rookie card, two Ted Williams' rookie cards, Al Kaline's rookie card. The set was worth thousands of dollars, and my dad had it, and I didn't even know it. Now, the set was a little beat up, and he had used tape to tape them to the, you know, the construction paper binder, you know. And But, boy, oh, my goodness, this was like opening a book of dreams for me as, a, as like a 12-year-old kid. And then he did something I did not expect. My dad said to me, Dave, do you think that you could take care of this set for me? Would you like to have this? I was like, yes. Yes, Dad, I want this. Yes, I can handle it. Yeah. And he gave me that portion of his inheritance early. Oh, what a gift. What a gift for me as a 12-year-old kid. And I hung on to that set, and I took care of it for about 10 years. And I, you know, I, 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 um, I, you know I, I figured out how to get the tape markings off the back, and I used, you know, the chemical solution to, like, clean them up, and I kept them in this box, and I treasured that set of baseball cards until I was in my early 20s. And my relationship with my dad was broken, and we had kind of alienated one another. He said things he regretted. I said things I regretted, and we just didn't have much of a relationship. I had kind of gone off the deep end and made a lot of poor choices, and my dad had a hard time connecting with me and, you know, showing his love to me during that time. And I didn't treasure that anymore. I just lost it. I, I, I forgot about the value. And I was in a place in life where I didn't even care. You know, that was something that I had promised myself, I'm going to give this to my son someday. This is priceless. But I had forgot, I had lost sight of that. And all I could care about, and you know, all I really cared about during that stage of my life is, when and where am I going to get high next? Where can I get the money to get high? You know, and that's really where I was in life. I, you know, was wasting my youth. And I figured out that I could get some money for that set of cards. So I went to a baseball card convention, and I took my box, my treasure with me. And the first person that showed any interest, I sold the whole set to him for $400. And I used that money to get high. It's exactly what I used it for. Oh, do I regret that now. Oh, do I regret wasting that inheritance and wasting that treasure. And you know what? I'll, I can never, I'll never find that guy. And even if I could, he would never give me that set back for the, 400, I, for the $400. I'll never get that back. But you know what? You know what's great about God? If you find yourself worshiping an idol, God will, take, God will let you make the trade back. He will give himself back to you. It's almost like in Romans 1, Paul is saying that all of our problems boil down to a horrible trade. We've made the worst trade possible. We've traded intimacy with God for something far less valuable, something worthless in comparison. But we can trade back. How does that even happen? How do we, how do we find ourselves in this place where we're willing to make such a terrible trade? Well, here's how it works. You experience some kind of distress in your life, some kind of worry or anxiety or fear or disappointment or suffering, and you feel like your self-worth is at stake. 
you feel that you must have some kind of relief, some kind of soothing, some kind of comfort or peace. So you might turn to God for that. But God makes you wait. Or he doesn't give you the result you wanted, you know? And so you turn to something else. What is that? That's your idol. That's the exchange. And you know it's an idol if you think you can't be happy without it. That's how you know. Jesus once compared life in the kingdom of God with a great banquet. In Luke chapter 14, verse 16 to 20, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. He said, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Listen, these are people, Jesus is saying, who refuse, who, they're refusing to come to Christ for joy and peace. Instead of accepting Jesus' invitation, instead of spending time with Jesus and learning from Jesus and obeying Jesus, they make excuses. One of them goes out and buys a property, and they got to go in, in, inspect it, another, and they want to check it out. Another one just bought some new farming equipment. They need to go check that out. The third guy gives the excuse. He just got married and needs to do married stuff, I guess. They all choose to spend their time cherishing something or someone more than Jesus. They all make a bad trade. And for the people described in this passage, they miss out on the greatest treasure of all. They miss out on the great feast, the deepest and most intense joy, because they're too busy with day-to-day distractions in life, which are not bad things. There's, not bad, there's nothing bad about buying a property. There's nothing bad about getting married. Those are good things. But they make them the most important things. They get in the way of God. I was the guy, actually, who gave God the excuse that I needed to work on my marriage. About eight, eight or nine years ago, my wife and I went through a terrible crisis. Our marriage was broken, and without getting into all the details... I'd made, some, I'd made some really poor choices as a husband, and my wife's trust in me was broken. And it was so bad that I wasn't sure we'd make it. I really wasn't. I don't, think she, I don't think she knew either. For most of that year, we were living as roommates. We weren't living as a married couple. We weren't even really pretending to be married. That's how bad it was. It was really bad. And there were sleepless nights, there was stress in my life, there was a lot of fear, and I did not want to lose my wife, so I made it my mission to save our marriage. I was so focused on my wife. I was focused on pleasing her and loving her and doing everything I could to repair this trust that had been broken. And everything seemed to be going okay until my sister said something to me that really bothered me. She said to me something like, what if God's best for you does not include this marriage? And you know what? That really angered me. And I didn't know why at first. And I was like, what do you mean? What does that even mean? Of course it's God's best. I mean, God hates divorce. God wants to heal us. I know that God wants us to stay married. How could you say that to me? It really bothered me. 
And you know what? By God's grace, we did make it. My wife did forgive me, and he did heal and restore. But there's something about what my sister said that continued to haunt me. And it took me a really long time, but I finally figured it out. I figured out what she meant. And what, we, what she meant was, maybe your marriage is too important to you. And she was absolutely right. My marriage was more important to me than God was. In my mind, if my marriage doesn't survive, I no longer have worth. I no longer have an identity. All hope for happiness is gone. And that's messed up. That's no way to live, my friends. And I still haven't told my sister she was right because I'm her older brother. We just don't do that. Older brothers don't do that. She already knows she was right. She doesn't need me to tell her that. But the question I finally came to was this. Would God want my marriage to fail if that was the only way for me to see that God is worth more than my marriage? That intimacy with God is better than intimacy with my wife. That, you know, so that I would cherish God more than I cherish my marriage. The answer is yes. He would. My marriage can't save me. My marriage can't define me. God will not compete with my marriage. And that's how idolatry works. That's why idolatry is so difficult to detect because we take, we take things that are good and we make them the most important things. They're mostly good things, right? Idolatry is a matter of the heart and there are simply, there's simply not room in our hearts for God and something else. It's not that we can't love others or give ourselves to others or sacrifice to our wives, sacrifice for our children, sacrifice for our jobs. That's not the point. It's just that we only have room in our hearts for one Lord. We only have enough affection to cherish one thing above everything else. That's how God made us. That's what being a disciple means, actually. Doesn't it? It's about treasuring God above everything else. Isn't that what we've been learning? This is, this is why Jesus said things like, you cannot serve God and money. He said, unless you renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God has to be our first love. That's how the relationship works. There's no other way to relate to God. There's no other way to worship God. There's no other way to experience his life and power. He will not come in second place. We have to treasure him first. And if we're not treasuring God first, we're treasuring something else or someone else first. And that is death to us. That's a very dangerous place to be because nothing else can give us life. Nothing else can give us worth. Nothing else can rescue us. So over the next few weeks, we're going to expose some of the idols that captivate us because that's what we have to do. Idols are very deceptive and sophisticated and difficult to detect. And so we have to expose our idols and then trade them back for God. That's what we have to do. It's another way of saying repent. 
Repent and turn to God. He's your life. That's the point, right? And so in your, um, your bright orange sermon insert that you have today, you're going to find some diagnostic questions that I've put there for your benefit to help you go through this week and take home and just ask yourself, you know, do an examination. What is it that I'm treasuring in my life? Is there anything in my life that is taking center stage in place of Jesus Christ? It's just a way for us to help us think about where our affections are and what we worship. Now, I want to leave you today with this. A couple, a couple years ago, I heard, um, there's this preacher that I, I, I like listening to and I don't at the same time because he, he really hits me between the eyes sometimes. And, and he shared this story with his church a couple years ago. And I'm, I'm going to share a similar thing. I'm just going to change around the details. But he asked, this is basically what he said. Just imagine, okay, that you were a, a foreigner who, um, from a third world country, like maybe you grew up in a tribe, in, in, in a remote tribe in Indonesia or something, and someone brought you over to the United States, and you began to observe our culture and how we operate here as modern day Americans. And you noticed something peculiar about Sundays in America. There are thousands of people who wake up on Sunday mornings and they kind of drag themselves out of bed and they go to these buildings where all, a lot of other people go and they walk into a sanctuary or auditorium or whatever and um, for a ceremony. And about half of them show up late for this ceremony. And I'm not thinking about anyone in particular here. But they come and they sit down and they begin singing together these songs. And they're, the, you know, their words are on the screen and they're singing the songs and... and some people are really into it, and a lot of people are just kind of, you know, standing there. And other people are just kind of, you know, expressionless, just kind of mouthing the, the words and, you know, not really all that into it. And then, you know, some really handsome young man comes up here, and I'm talking about another church now, and he starts talking to everybody, and he's trying to get everyone excited, and he's, he's telling them about this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and people, and he's really excited about it, but everyone else is just kind of looking at him. And some people are nodding in agreement, and other people have their eyes closed. And some people are just, you know, kind of taking it all in and, you know, scratching their heads like, what is he even talking about? And then at the end of the service, we, they sing a little more, and then everyone leaves. And, and, and a lot of people start talking about this other ceremony that's going to be going on later in the day. You already know where I'm going with this, don't you? Okay? And they're pretty excited about that ceremony. Nobody's late to that one. In fact, some people, they drive hours to go to this ceremony and they enter this huge shrine where there are tens of thousands of people and they show up hours in advance and they're eating and drinking and they have this great anticipation and excitement for this ceremony. It's like the highlight of their week. And there are millions of other people who are sitting in their living rooms or having parties and gatherings. And they're gathered together in anxious anticipation, wearing uniforms and eating and drinking. And they're so excited about this event, they're going to watch it on TV because they can't be at the shrine this week. Right? They're, in, they're just anticipating this event, which is, you know, they're anticipating victory. That's what they're there for. And then this game, this awesome game is played, and everyone is, you know, throughout the whole thing is totally into it. They don't want to miss any of the action. And then if there's victory, man, then, wow, the whole rest of the day there's celebration. 
I mean, really, either way in Wisconsin, there's a lot of drinking. But there's just celebration and all of this the rest of the day. And if the team loses, well, then everyone's miserable the rest of the day and maybe into Monday and Tuesday. But I want to ask you something. If you were an outsider, okay, who did not know anything about our culture, and you came in and you observed this, these two different ceremonies on Sundays, which ceremony, which team, which movement would you say has captured the hearts of the people of our city? That's the question. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with you watching the Packer game on Sundays and having a great, great time doing it, okay? But if that's the highlight of your weekend, something's wrong. I'm not just talking about the Packers even. Me and like a hundred other people are really excited about the Bucks this season. And then there's kids. There's kids too. Kids sports, it's like an enterprise. Okay? We talk to our kids and treat our kids like they're athletes at a very early age. We're shaping our children's identity. And if we were to ask our children, who are you? Would they say, I'm an athlete? Or would they say, I'm a disciple of Jesus? I'm a worshiper of the one true God. Which would they say? If we get more excited about our kids scoring a goal or making a shot or a touchdown than we do when we see them loving God or other people, something is wrong. It's time for us to wake up to God and to wake up to His presence and His power and His glory because we were created as worshipers. That's what we're created to be. And when we try to be something else, we always come up empty. I, don't, I really don't want you to tell me after a sermon, Dave, that was a good sermon. That was a great sermon. That was interesting. That was inspiring. I don't need your compliments. My ego is too big as it is. I would much rather see you in a sermon you know, crying or, or laughing or dancing or shouting because, or some kind of emotion because you're overwhelmed by the greatness of God. That's what I want to see. That's what matters. I want to see fire in your eyes and in your heart and in your mouth when you talk about Jesus. And some of us are ashamed to talk about Jesus. But what else is worth talking about? Honestly. What else is worth living for? Jesus is it. We found the one treasure worth exchanging everything else for. There's no more searching. There's no more looking. The search is over. God has shown himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We found the one treasure worth leaving everything else behind. And yet sometimes we feel that, if, that, that you know, to talk about Jesus with someone might be awkward. It might make them feel uncomfortable. But let me ask you, if you saw someone trapped in a fire and they were dying and you saw a way out, would you tell them what it was? Or would you be like, oh, that might be awkward. It might make them feel uncomfortable. I'm just going to pass. I mean, God has given us the message of life. Grace for sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. We need a revival in this church. We need a revival in this city. And I'm not talking about some emotionally driven movement 
or some shallow excitement. I'm talking about worshipers, a movement of worshipers, a movement of people who are more devoted to Jesus Christ than they are devoted to anything else. That's what we need. That's why we're here. That's the only reason we're here. But before we can worship God rightly, we have to expose and exchange our idols. We have to. And so our goal over the next few weeks is to prove to you that God is worth more than everything else in your life and to help you expose your idols and walk away from your fears and walk away from your shame and return to God who is the center of your life and the center of your worth and the center of your identity. Are you ready to go on this journey with me? Let's pray together. God, our Father, forgive us for looking to other people and things to give us what only you can. Our spouse can't save us. Our kids can't save us. Our jobs and accomplishments can't save us. None of that can give us what we truly need. None of those things can give us worth, God. We are created in your image to give you glory, and that is it. There's no other purpose that we have but to give you glory with our lives. That's our whole life. My whole life is for your glory, Lord. My whole life is from you and for you. Nothing will change that. Why do I chase after vain things? God, bring us back to the center, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Bring us back to the cross where Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin. Only in Jesus do we find life. Only in Jesus do we have hope. Jesus, you are our righteousness. You are our justification. Turn our hearts away from vain and empty things today, God, and turn our hearts to you. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for the benediction, which today comes from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, where the Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To Him be glory forever. Amen. You are dismissed.